Welcome to the 276th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Kyle McCarthy, author of the brand new debut novel, Everyone Knows How Much I Love You. And stay tuned after the interview for a short excerpt from the audiobook version of Everyone Knows How Much I Love You. Stay tuned for the interview. Expand your reading and add some authors of color to your to-be-read list. In this episode, I just wanted to take a moment to mention Stephen Barnes. Stephen is an American science fiction, fantasy, and mystery writer. He's co-written the Dream Park novels with Larry Niven, and he wrote standalone novels of his own, Street Lethal, Gorgon Child, Fire Dance, the Inshalla series, which is Lion's Blood and Zulu Heart. And he also co-wrote the Herod series, The Legacy of Herod, Beowulf's Children, Starborn, and Godsons with Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. And with his wife, Tannery Du, he recently co-wrote an episode of the brand new Twilight Zone for CBS All Access. The episode is small, is titled Small Town. Again, the author is Stephen Barnes. Take a look at some of his titles. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the large audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports community with your audiobooks purchases. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast Special Offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST. For two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Kyle McCarthy, author of the debut novel, Everyone Knows How Much I Love You. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Everyone Knows How Much I Love You, how would you describe the novel? Sure. Um, My novel is about a young woman named Rose who, as a high school student, does the thing to her friend, her best friend, that she is really not supposed to do. It's like the one thing you should never do to your best friend. And the friendship falls apart and they become estranged for 12 years Um, until they cross paths again in New York City when they're both 30 and they're both trying to make it as artists. And because Rose is so obsessed with her best friend and obsessed with what she did back in high school, she worms her way back into Lacey's life and 
The two friends begin living together, throwing parties together. Rose is trying to make amends for the past, but then she finds herself slowly starting to repeat the past. (laughs) So do you remember the original idea that led you to write, everyone knows how much I love you? Um, I am embarrassed to say that when I was in college, I did something to a friend that was not as bad as what Rose does, but was still so out of character for me um, that I was really dumbfounded. And I thought about it for over a decade and began writing about it because I just couldn't understand why I had done something so hurtful to someone I cared about. And from there came all of these musings about friendship and love and uh, the way that we use each other as mirrors. So what are your earliest memories of reading and books? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think like many writers, I was one of those kids who just read obsessively like underneath the dining room table and after lights out and during math class. But I really remember one summer when I discovered the Nancy Drew mysteries and I think our library must have had like 150 of them. And I read them all just one after another. Um, I think there's something So I don't want to say primal because reading is not really a primal experience, but there's something so essential about that being lost in a book feeling that I discovered when I was eight years old. And I think I've been chasing ever since. (laughs) That's a great memory. (laughs) So, so what was the path to publication for you to writing and getting your first, your debut novel published? Had you always wanted to be a writer from those early experiences that you just talked about in terms of reading and getting lost in a book? I did always write small stories from the time I was a child. I can remember writing something in fourth grade about a bike ride I had taken and uh, not a friend, a boy in the class going, that is the most boring story I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Which someone was like, I was just... I guess I had a lot of self-regard even at that age. I was like, it is not boring. (laughs) Um, But I actually danced really seriously through the early part of my teens. And when I made the really painful decision to put ballet away, it sort of cleared up some energy or space to pursue writing. So I don't know if it was just about sort of wanting some attention or if it was that um, I suddenly had more creative energy, but I can very distinctly remember hanging up my point shoes and then sort of returning to writing with more intent. And, and, and what was your path to publication for, for getting your first novel published? It was a long road. I know I'm sort of talking about like adolescence as if it just sort of, naturally spun into a writing career, but um, <laughs> that's not the case. I um, I worked in publishing for a little bit in my 20s. Then I went to graduate school and got my MFA and was working on a novel then. 
And I think I, I was in my late twenties and then early thirties. And I really had this idea that I could kind of make the novel perfect. I just sort of slaved over it. Um, and it, I think it did slowly get better, but it also became kind of a little bit airless and maybe like something I was carrying around with me. So when I finally put it aside, I was like, I'm just going to write for fun. Like, I don't know if publication will ever happen to me. I don't know if anyone will ever want to read what I'm writing, but I'm just going to enjoy myself. And that was when I discovered Rose's voice and started returning to this novel idea that I had chewed over. And once I kind of found Rose's voice and oriented myself around having fun while writing and trying to entertain myself, uh, I think the book came together relatively quickly and um, we were able to sell the book two years ago, almost exactly. Um, I remember because it was 4th of July weekend two years ago. And, uh, and then I worked on it for another year with my really wonderful editor, Sarah Weiss. And then it went through the publication process. Great. And have, have you since ever considered going back to that first novel that you mentioned and seeing if you could revive it? I think that I will at some point. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit like the monster under the bed or something. <laughs> or maybe it's like reading your teenage diary or something. It's like, who knows? But, um, but I think at some point I'll take another look at it. And are you working on another novel now? I am. And I think it's, it's funny. I think when you are writing, not knowing whether or not anyone will ever read it, there's a certain freedom. And I remember that people used to tell me that there was freedom in not being published. And I thought it was so condescending because all I wanted was to be published. But now even just being a week on the other side of it, I do understand that there is something liberating about writing in the dark. Um, I can tell that I'll need with this next project to really kind of cultivate that kind of privacy um, and forget that the world might look at it. So. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your decision to leave book publishing to, to pursue an MFA I know that there are a lot of people who uh, come to New York in their 20s and work in book publishing. What what was your kind of motivation to leave that and, and get an MFA? I think I always knew that I wanted to write fiction. And with the sort of hubris of youth, I kind of also imagined that I could also be a book editor. And I worked with a really wonderful editor at Knopf. He was so supportive. Um, but I started to really understand that book editing is a more than full-time job and it requires the kind <laughs> of creativity and vision that writing does. Um, obviously there's a few famous examples of people who manage to do both, but I think especially with all the pressure on editors now and the way that so many editors do the editing part of their jobs on weekends and evenings, um, it really started to become clear to me that there was not room for both. Sure. I experienced that. I worked at a literary agency in New York city. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> you know of what I speak. 
<laughs> yep. Every weekend spent reading manuscripts. Yeah. It's very, it's very intense to feel um, something you really love, like reading, turn into a job. I know. I know. <laughs> so, so you went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is iconic. What was your experience with the workshop? It was an experience first of terror and then of joy, I would say. Um, like many people, I showed up and felt like I didn't belong and was fortunate enough to have like extremely talented peers. Uh, my cohort was just a really gifted group of writers. And so it's intimidating for sure. Um, but it also made me sort of dig into myself and really work hard. It's, I think it's the first time in my life that I really started working on writing for three or four hours a day. Um, sometimes more, uh, really reading intensely, thinking about what sentences sounded like, reading my work out loud. There was something about not only having such great teachers, but also having such incredible peers that made me kind of up my game. So that was the work part of it. I will also say that Iowa is kind of a magical place because they really trust you to act as a writer. You're not saddled with a ton of academic responsibilities. Many people teach, uh, many people do go to seminars, but there's really a sense that as an artist, you have the best idea of how to manage your time. And so there's a lot of freedom, which was really fun. I, I kind of joke that it's like summer camp for adults. So as you worked on that first novel that you mentioned, and then later your debut novel, which has just been published, Everyone Knows How Much I Love You, were there any specific writing challenges that you found yourself having to overcome or figure out, whether it be characterization, plotting, dialogue? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that with my with my current novel, my debut novel, everyone knows how much I love you. There was really a temptation to put in every sort of idea that I had about the themes and characters. So the book is a lot about female friendship and who we are as teenagers and how that informs who we are as adults. But I was also thinking a lot about memory and the way that people can remember the same event very differently. And I think a big struggle was to realize that I didn't have to put everything in at once. And my editor was really helpful in um, bringing me to understand that, that some ideas I could just let go. So I think that was one part of it. I think also like when you have a kind of complicated plot and different timelines, there is just sort of a a game of trying to figure out how to release information in the right order in a way that's compelling, but not heavy handed. Um, and of course that only gets harder the more times you read it because you can no longer <laughs> tell what's interesting. And, and what was that editing process like for you? I think you said you worked for about a year with your editor. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, I wrote, you know, I had sort of labored over this first novel for eight years and shed blood, sweat, and tears over it. And so Mm -hmm. everyone knows really came in kind of this gust. And the process of working with my editor, Sarah, was about sort of 
clarifying my intention, clarifying the characters. I mean, a whole lot of, I want to say housekeeping, which makes it sound like, I don't know, not quite as serious as it actually was, but deepening the characters, deepening the backstory, and just really becoming clear about the story that I wanted to tell. Uh, because I think I delivered to her this like exuberant mess <laughs> and she helped <laughs> me clean it up. That's great. So what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels and hoping to get published? I think that for me, and of course it's different for everyone, but I think for me there was a real process of connecting to what is intrinsically rewarding about reading and writing. Of course, everyone wants to get published, but I think there was a certain point in which I felt sort of consumed by that um, and hoping that that would change who I was as a person. And there was a real process for me of letting go and connecting to just what was pleasurable about prose. So... For people who are trying to write, I would say read stuff that you truly love, not what you think you should love, but what you really truly love. And if that's, you know, mystery novels that other people think are trashy, that's fine. Really immerse yourself in prose that makes you want to write and then really write the book that you would want to read, the book that you wish was on the shelf for you. That's good advice. What what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you particularly enjoyed? Mm. Um, I just, I think there's a sort of a, I always wonder if like in a little bit we'll have this resurgence of all the books that have come out during the past few months that we missed because the national news has been so, international news has been so consuming. Sure. Um but my friend Evan James released a collection of essays in March called uh, I've been wrong before that they're so funny. They're so hilarious. I mean, it's like David Sedaris level wit and the collection came out right as the coronavirus was beginning to gather steam in the U S and I think that the book sort of got lost. So if you're listening and you like humorous essays, I think I've, I've been wrong before by Evan James is worth checking out. Great. So where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel? I am sort of in keeping with that wanting to build a private space. I'm not a huge presence online. Um, I don't have any social media, but I do have a website, kylermccarthy.com. And there's a contact page. And if people write to me, I will write back. I like interacting with readers. I'm just a little shy as a public presence. (laughs) Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Kyle McCarthy, author of the new novel, Everyone Knows How Much I Love You. The novel is available now. So go buy a copy. And Kyle, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. And stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audio book of Everyone Knows How Much I Love You. Available wherever audiobooks are sold. Narrated by Kristen Say. As many times as I've tried, I can't go back. As many times as I've sat writing at my desk, so many different desks in so many different cities,
That exact moment on the road remains blank. What was in my mind? I've tried to find it. I've conjured, fibbed, faked it, and let it remain the lie in the middle of my novel. The improvisation, the patch, the cock over the crack in my memory. At the time, everyone wanted to know what I'd been thinking. And maybe lying so often lost me access to the truth. Not the truth, but the feeling. You just overshot the curve? My mom said. Was there a deer? A cop asked. Another car, his buddy guessed. They were so desperate to understand, to diminish what I'd done, decipher it. So you swerved. I did swerve. But it wasn't a flinch. It wasn't a mistake. There was a column of rage in me, a crackle of blue flame clarifying. The whole problem, as I recall, was that Leo kept talking. Leo wouldn't shut up. It was past one in the morning, and he wouldn't stop talking about Lacey. And so I turned the wheel. Did I simply want to scare him? That might be too generous. But even now, all these years later, trying once again to summon the moment, all I find is static. The moment afterward, I remember. The moment afterward, indelible. Before the sirens, before the ambulance, before all the flashlights and noise and shouting, there was just a quivering hush, the trickling creak, and my beautiful boy, my best friend's boyfriend, his warm blood all over my lap. August, and a gray, sweaty shimmer lay over Bryant Park. Cops stood around looking bored. A homeless man keened. Women in pencil skirts unwrapped greasy sandwiches with quick surgical fingers or forked up massive bites of salad. They ate quickly, alone. They had come to enjoy being outside in this urban oasis, yet their shoulders were hunched and their eyes lowered. But who was I to judge? I too sat at a little green table with my shoulders hunched. I too tapped my cell phone and darted my eyes, wishing I had chosen a coffee shop, someplace normal. Though at the time, Bryant Park made sense. Lacey lived in Brooklyn. I was staying with my cousin in Queens. There was the meeting with Portia Khan, my so-called agent, which would bring me to Midtown anyway. And I was broke. Even $4 for tea, especially $4 for tea, seemed unbearable to me. So I had suggested this glade of green where we could sit for free. While I waited, I watched a woman at a sandwich kiosk feebly disguised as an antique gazebo. She wore a loose black jumpsuit and espadrilles. She had a tote bag. Her brown curls were carelessly pulled into a messy topknot. She was not like the office drones. In fact, I could almost imagine myself, once I had settled into my New York life, dressing something like her. Up at the green-black trees, she gazed. Then she turned. Everything slowed. My lizard brain knew her. Even from across the park, I knew. That tilt of the head, the squint as she scanned the tables. I had a sudden instinct to hide. Too late, she had spotted me. Was even now rushing across the park, calling, 
Rose! Then she stopped short. We met each other's eyes. We stared deep. We looked the way you look in a mirror when you are alone. Blatant. Utterly unselfconscious. Wow, she murmured. It's been so long. It's been forever. Time had sharpened her face. And it was strange to see her with a few strands of silver hair. Yet in her gray eyes and the vexed, pointed chin, there was still Lacey. The spell broke. She broke it with a tentative smile, and we embraced. Inside my arms, she smelled of sweat and summer. Everything came back to me. Lacey. Lucinda Salt. Here. I shuddered. She pulled back. Want to sit? Do you still have some time? So much time, I said, and then regretted my honesty. I couldn't stop looking at her. Her eyes, I thought. What drives men crazy are her eyes. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.